How should you live while you wait for Christ's return? That's the question we're going to try to answer today. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning of verse 11, and we're going to go all the way to the end of the letter, verse 18. No matter what we may think, Christ will return. And Peter tells us that the world and all that is evil is going to be destroyed and a new heavens and a new earth is going to be created in which righteousness dwells. And we should live in light of that truth. That truth must change how we live now. We have to live this day in light of that day. So what sort of people should we be? And Peter answers that question with four commands that lead us to a final conclusion. The first command is to be diligent, to be found holy and at peace when Christ returns. See this in verses 11 through 14. In verse 11, Peter says, what sort of people should you be in lives of holiness and godliness? And if you skip down to verse 14, he uh, says, he gives a command, be diligent to be found by him, that's by Jesus, without spot or blemish and at peace. Now, like all apocalyptic teaching in the New Testament, our text today has a practical focus. The purpose of eschatology, the study of the, the last things, is to make us faithful Christians here and now. In fact, there's no passage on eschatology in the New Testament without this kind of practical focus. God doesn't tell us what's to come in order to satisfy our curiosity, but in order to change the way that we live so that we'll be ready when Christ returns. So let's look a little closer at verses 11 through 14. We're going to see two reasons or motivation for being holy. You can see here the word since pops up twice. So we're going to see two reasons or motivations. Peter says, since all these things are, be, are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, which is the same as the day of the Lord, from verse 10, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The first motivation that we see to be holy is because Christ's return is going to be a time of judgment when evil, everything that is evil, will be destroyed. We see that in verses 11 and 12. The heavens and the earth are going to be destroyed by fire, verse 7, verse 10, verse 12. Why? Why are these things going to be destroyed? Because of unrighteousness, sin. The new heaven and new earth in verse 13, it says, will be a place where righteousness dwells. Or as John puts it, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Revelation 21, 27. The reason that the world is going to be destroyed is because of judgment for sin. When Christ returns, the works that are done on earth will be exposed. Look at verse 10. It's the end of verse 10. Literally, they will be found out. Christ is going to find out everything. The real question is, how will he find you? It's the exact same word in verse 14. Peter says, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. There's this an accountability 
uh, for how Jesus finds us when he returns. So we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. And Peter's telling us, don't abandon the way of righteousness like the false teachers did. That leads to the gloom of utter darkness. We saw that in chapter two. Instead, be diligent, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure because if you practice godliness, these godly virtues, then you will never fall away. And there will be richly provided for you a a, a rich welcome into heaven, into the eternal kingdom. We saw that in chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. Peter's been saying this all along. Only those who persevere in the faith are going to enter heaven. That's the first motivation to be holy. Yes, you are saved by grace through faith. Amen? Amen? We are justified, we are counted righteous by faith in Christ. But it does not follow from this that we can then go on living in sin. Genuine faith always leads to obedience to Christ. It leads to holiness. Heaven is for those who put their faith in Christ and then live following Jesus Christ by faith. Don't make the same mistake as the false teachers who scoffed saying, hey, where's the promise of his coming? I don't see it, man. Uh, It's business as usual here. Life goes on just like it always has for the last thousand, two thousand years. Nothing's changing. Where's his coming? They denied the, the, the judgment of God because they denied the coming of Christ. And because there's no judgment, then they thought we can live however we want. And that's exactly what they did. They pursued their worldly pleasures and sensuality. They, they sought to gratify their sinful desires. Verse three, they were greedy for material gain, willing to exploit the flock. They didn't care who they hurt. They just want what they want. Don't fall into this trap. It is short-sighted and stupid to live for the things of the world because they're all going to burn. It's like investing in a company that's guaranteed to go belly up. You guys remember Blockbuster? That, that was the place where you used to go to like rent movies on DVD. It'd be like in, investing in Blockbuster in 2010, knowing that that year they're going to go out of business. <laughs> like pouring everything you have into, into Blockbuster video in 2010. That's a bad investment. Why invest in what's going bankrupt? Don't chase the temporary values of this world. That's a bad investment. Settle your heart. The world and all the things that are in it are temporary. They are passing away. When Christ returns, your retirement fund won't matter. Your career accomplishments won't matter. The square footage of your home won't matter. All that's temporary. Only what you have invested in the kingdom will matter. Only what you do in holiness and in righteousness in service to Jesus Christ will matter. I have this, uh, this sits on my desk uh, at home. It's a quote from C.T. Studd. It says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ 
will last. It's a constant reminder to me. That, that is the truth. Let that thought shape your life. Devote yourself to what's going to last. Live lives of holiness and godliness in service to Christ. To be ready means to be faithful with what Christ has given you and what Christ has called you to right now. Now, this same truth that the world and everything in it is passing away is also a great comfort to us. It should cheer the heart of every Christian to know that everything in this world is passing away because it means that all your trials and tribulations, all of your sorrows and and your suffering, every cross that you bear, every evil that exists is also temporary. They too are soon to come to an end. Amen? And we labor in the Lord right now knowing that rest is coming. We fight the good fight of faith knowing there's going to be a day of peace. We bear our cross now knowing that someday it's going to be exchanged for a crown. Amen? And that leads to the second motivation. Be holy because Christ brings the blessing of a new heaven and a new earth. We see this in verses 13 and 14. We should be holy, not just because this world is passing away, but because a new one is going to take its place. Christ's coming doesn't just bring destruction, it also brings renewal. Look at verses 13 and 14. But according to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Since you're waiting for these, since you're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth, See, Peter grounds his command to be holy, to be diligent to be holy in the hope of heaven. The promise that he's talking about is found in Isaiah in a couple different places, Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66. Let me just read Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. This world is temporary, but the next one is eternal. And your future joy is forever. Your happiness will never cease, never diminish, never get old, never be removed. Heaven is going to be a feast without a finish. It's going to be a party without a parting. It's going to be a day without a night. There's not going to be any grieving or crying or pain anymore. All of the pain of this world is going to vanish. All the beauty of this world is going to be heightened and perfected. We will work and play. We will feast and fellowship. We will learn and grow. But best of all, we will be with God in whose presence there is fullness of joy. What awaits you is full joy forever. No wonder Paul looks to our future glory and he says, comfort one another with these words. No wonder he says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. Look at what you have to gain. Surely this is motivation for holiness. Oh, that our hearts would be so 
filled with the future that God has planned for us, that they would be freed from from greed and sensuality and pride and everything else that tempts us to sin. That our future hope would wither the roots of sin in our life and water the roots of righteousness in our life. Christians are motivated by a a forward look, by waiting. Peter says it three times, waiting, we're waiting. Verse 12, verse 13, verse 14. This word waiting, it means eager anticipation. We're we're, we're saying as, as Christians, come Lord Jesus. Amen? It's not like waiting in line at the DMV. That's awful. It's like a kid waiting for Christmas. It's the kind of waiting that makes you excited for what's to come. We long for Christ to come because for us, his return is not something to dread, but something to celebrate. When a store is being robbed, it's the thieves that should fear the arrival of the police. But if you're there as a customer, you long for the arrival of the police. Why? Because they're going to restore justice and peace and righteousness. If that's true, how much more so when Christ returns and he restores all justice, he rights every wrong, he restores perfect peace, perfect righteousness. Come, Lord Jesus, come. What joy will follow for those who love him? So live now in a way that makes Christ's coming something that you welcome, not something that you dread. Jesus is going to appear a second time to save all of those who are eagerly waiting for him. Hebrews 9, 28. Christians, we we wait eagerly for Christ's return because we have nothing to fear and everything to hope from his return. That's how we're found at peace. We're at peace with his coming. We don't need to be anxious about the present. We don't need to be anxious about the future. No matter what happens on the world stage, no matter how much chaos or corruption uh, or how chaotic things get, our hope gives us a peace that anchors us in what God has planned for us in Jesus Christ, what God has planned for those who love him. We live at peace because we're right with God and we can enter his presence. We're ready to enter his presence with joy. That day is going to result in judgment for unbelievers for their sin and reward for disciples. So live this day in light of that day. C.S. Lewis observed, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. They all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth, quote unquote, thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. The world's coming to an end, so what should you do? Be holy and at peace. Be holy and at peace. The second command is to consider God's patience as salvation. We see this in verses 15 and 16. 
Peter says, and consider the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Peter and Paul both agree that we are to consider um, the time before the second coming as a time of salvation. We already saw this in verse 9. We saw that God postpones judgment in order to give time for repentance so that the full number of God's people can be saved or will be saved. Romans 2.4, Paul says, do you, I have it on here. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Again, 2 Corinthians 6.2, Paul says, behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. There is a day of judgment coming. But until Christ returns, now is the day of salvation. Peter and Paul are telling us, how are we supposed to understand the times in which we live? This is a time of salvation, a time when people can be saved. But when Christ returns, that time will be over. God is giving time for people to repent and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. That is the overarching meaning of this time in history in which we live. This is what God is doing in the world right now. So what sort of people should we be? the kind that understand this is a time of salvation and who live accordingly. And this means a couple of things. First, be sure of your own salvation. Peter's not, he wouldn't write this letter unless there were some people in these churches who were in danger of being destroyed. This is an opportunity to be reconciled with God. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Christ is coming to judge for sin but God has made a way of escape, a way, a way to be reconciled to God, to have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. The one who has Christ doesn't fear the future because his sins are forgiven. He's eager for eternity because his Savior has risen and prepared a place in heaven for him. The only way to go through this life with peace and to enter the next life with joy is to have Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So come to Christ by faith today and then follow him faithfully. Become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, if, if you already are a disciple of Jesus Christ, then our job is also clear. Go and make disciples go and share the gospel. Many people are turning to Christ in faith right now in Ukraine. As they face war and the real possibility of death, they want to be ready should they die. And many Christians are bravely risking their own lives in order to minister to these people and to bring them not only things to meet their physical needs, but also to bring the gospel and to bring God's word to meet their spiritual needs. Even sharing the gospel Sergei said, with demoralized and confused Russian soldiers asking for food and direction. Do you know how incredible that is? Imagine another nation invades the United States, causes massive destruction and loss of life. And those soldiers show up on your door, demoralized and confused, looking for direction, looking for food and water. And not only do you give them food and water, but you also share the gospel with them. That doesn't 
happen unless you are motivated by a divine love and a deeper mission in life. Do you know how incredible that is? That is what Jesus was talking about when he said, love your enemies. Sergey shared the example of some staff, Dima and his wife. I don't know if you read it online or not. Dima and his wife, they're in Irpin. It's just outside of Kiev. They're regularly delivering meals, medicine, and Bibles to people in bomb shelters. They can't just drive their car there. They've got to get out of their car and walk around the rubble of bridges and buildings that have been bombed, risking their own lives. The ministry center in, in Ukraine, in Irpin, it's currently housing 17 people, many of whom, Sergei said, were not believers when they came, but every single one of them is a Christian now. They now enjoy their time in prayer, fellowship, and Bible reading in the evenings. Amen? Why would Dima and his wife do that? Why would they risk all that? Because they know that now is the day of salvation. Oswald Smith said, we talk about the second coming. Half the world hasn't even heard about the first. Just as heaven means eternal joy for disciple, hell means eternal misery for the lost. Let that motivate you to share the gospel while there's still time and to pray and pray and pray. Because it's not us, it's God. Amen? See, for Christians, we know this is a time of salvation. So be bold, be zealous, bring as many people to Christ as you can. Join God's word in adding to his kingdom. Join in the labor of the harvest. The harvest is plentiful. It's the laborers that are few. Now's the time to share the gospel with your neighbor, with your coworker, with your friend, with your teammate, with your fellow customer. And if you had the cure for cancer, how terrible would it be to keep that a secret from humanity? How much worse then to have the cure for God's wrath and to keep that a secret from people. You have one mission. Let me boil it down. One mission, one business on this earth. It's to make disciples. That's it. That's your one mission in this day of salvation. That mission begins at home with your own children. That's your most important ministry. But it doesn't end at your home. It goes out from there. I've been so encouraged, so encouraged recently by stories of people at GFC reaching out to unbelievers, having them over for dinner, sharing the gospel here at church on Sunday morning, having evangelistic Bible studies with them. This is awesome. Be a disciple and make disciples. That's what this time in history is about the world's coming to an end. What should you do? Believe and share the gospel. Like, as a church, our waiting, our eagerness should not be characterized by retreat, but advanced. Not by cowardice, but by courage. Not by hiding, 
but by harvest labor. That's what we're here for. You want to know how you should live? Believe and share the gospel. Third, take care to stand firm on God's word and not be carried away by error. We see this in verses 16 and 17. Peter says, there, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care, there's the command, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Notice Paul puts, uh, sorry, Peter puts Paul's letters in the same category as the other scriptures. That's the Old Testament. It's the authoritative word of God. It's affirmed by Jesus Christ in places like uh, Luke 24, 44, and 45, Matthew 17, and other places. Peter is saying that Paul's letters are the word of God. It's God's word with God's authority for doctrine and direction in life. And because, because the Bible is God's word, it's true, it's without error. We call that inerrant or inerrancy. We might understand it wrong. We might understand it wrong, but there's nothing wrong with it. It's also our final authority. It's our standard of truth. We live by God's word, not man's word. It's the center of the Christian life. It's the center of this church. We can't know the truth. We can't know ourselves. We can't know God. We can't know Christ. We can't know God's ways without God speaking to us. We're utterly dependent on the scriptures and we're utterly lost without them. Some things are hard to stand, Peter says, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. A couple weeks back, we spent most of our time talking about how to rightly interpret God's word because the best defense against false doctrine is knowing the truth. And now we see just how serious it is. Peter says, knowing this beforehand, knowing that twisting the scriptures can lead to destruction, take care. You're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, verse 17. If you abandon God's word, you risk being swept away into error and destruction. It's like a ship that loses its course and runs aground on some rocky shoals and is destroyed. The the word is your map, your compass, your chart to navigate the world and avoid the, the hidden reefs of lawless men. So be on guard because you know the danger. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. Reject false teaching, hold fast to Christ in his word. That's how you remain steadfast. The Bible has the power to transform your life. It has the power to transform the world. If you want to be holy, if you want to be found holy when Christ returns, you have to live by God's word. So God's word should shape your marriage and how you spend your money. It should impact the music that you listen to and the movies that you watch and how you raise your kids and use your time and talk to your friends and mow the lawn and drive your car and do your job In short, every single area of your life, no matter how mundane. The world's coming to an end. What should you do? Stand firm on God's word. Finally, the final command in the letter comes in verse 18. Peter says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This summarizes the whole point of Peter's letter. He closes the exact same way that he began. take us back to the beginning. He began his letter, chapter 1, verse 2, by praying that God's grace and peace would be multiplied to us in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He ends by calling us to grow in grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. From start to finish, the Christian life is rooted in God's grace. 
And the ultimate aim is that we would know Christ. Not just intellectually, personally, relationally. That's what we're going to see here. Like a tree that grows strong because its roots are wide and deep. A tree that's firmly planted so the wind can't blow it over. Your roots have to be put down into the grace of God. You have to be firmly rooted in God's grace so you won't be blown over by lies, by temptation, but grow strong and bear fruit that lasts. God's grace is his undeserved favor toward us, unmerited favor. Great. Let's try to define that a little bit more. God's grace is the exercise of God's power for your good. God's grace is the exercise of God's power for your good. There are places in scripture where God's grace and God's power are almost used synonymously. So God tells Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Or 2 Corinthians 9, 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God's grace is God's power in your life for your good. Grace is the gift of God's forgiveness. It's the hope of eternal life. It's the riches of his mercy. It's the strength of his power. It's the fountain of his goodness toward us in Jesus Christ. It is the the strength that we need to live a life that is pleasing to him. Look at what Paul says. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. We get that, right? We're saved by grace through faith. We get that. But notice God's grace doesn't just save. He says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. God's grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. Amen. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14. God's grace not only saves us, it sanctifies us as we wait for Jesus. That's the purpose. So we're commanded then to grow in grace. How do you do that? Like what? How do you grow in God's grace? Well, God has provided several ways called his means of grace. In other words, these are ways in which God imparts his grace to you. So prayer is a means of grace. Hearing and reading the word is a means of grace. Baptism and communion are a means of grace. Thanks and praise and fellowship and giving and serving and fasting and singing. These are all ways that God imparts his grace to us. So if you want to grow in grace, grow in these things. Grow in these things. Ultimately, the whole point is that we learn as Christians, that we we learn to rely on God's grace moment by moment throughout our day, that we grow in trusting him, in talking to him throughout our day. To grow in grace, knowledge of him 
relationally, in fellowship and communion with him. Understand, beloved, the greatest gift that you have is Christ himself. He is the end goal of your faith. He is what it's all about. All of this is meant to lead us to communion with him. That's the point of our faith. Paul calls that union with Christ. John calls it abiding in Christ. And the Bible uses marriage to describe our union with Christ. This metaphor is good because it has a legal aspect and a relational aspect. On your wedding day, the marriage relationship is legalized. You enter the covenant of marriage. You have the full rights and privileges of a spouse. But it takes time, years even, to fully know and live out that new reality. The legal truth becomes a living truth as you grow in relationship. So it is with Christ. When we become a Christian, we have all the rights and privileges of being in his family. But we have to grow in fellowship with him. When you get married, the point is not simply to have the piece of paper, the the marriage license, so you can say, I'm married, and then go on living like you're single. But that's how a lot of people treat Jesus. Say, great, I'm a Christian. Then they go on living as if nothing has changed. I'm married to Sarah. Imagine if I continued dating other people. Imagine I live my life, but I don't take her into consideration in any of the decisions that I make. Imagine I don't spend any time with her, but I expect her to be there for me when I need something from her. How can we treat Christ that way? How can we cheat on God, chasing after the idols of this world? How can we live our lives and and make our decisions without any reference to what God says, without taking into consideration what he thinks, just keeping Jesus around in case we need him? No husband or wife is satisfied with the marriage license. They want to grow deeper and closer in their relationship as one. When you become part of God's family as his bride, we're not satisfied with the legal declaration of righteousness. We want to grow in knowing Christ, grow in relationship with him. And as we grow in that relationship with him, we grow in commitment to him, just like in marriage. We grow in communion with Christ by listening to his voice and walking with him by the Spirit. Being in communion or fellowship with Christ demands that we leave behind our old identity. Just like being married demands that we leave behind our identity as a single person. We have to live in this new reality. And Peter wants us to grow in knowledge of Christ because he wants us to enjoy him, Christ. That is the point. That's the ultimate goal, abiding in Christ, walking in sweet fellowship with Jesus Christ day by day. The world's coming to an end. So what should you do? Grow in grace and knowledge of Christ. 
Now, the power to be holy, the power to persevere in the faith, it all comes from God. I love that Peter ends on a high note. He ends on a hopeful note. He ends the same way that he began by pointing us to God's grace and God's power to do all of this. He said at the beginning of this letter, God's divine power has given you everything that you need for life and godliness. It is all by his grace, by his power. And that means it's all for his glory. So it's so fitting for him to end with this doxology. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. God's goal in your life is that Jesus be glorified now and forever, and that you enjoy Christ now and forever. That's what it's all about. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you and we praise you for you, for who you are, for what you've done, and that we can have relationship with you. God, I just ask and pray, Lord, make us ready for your return. Make us ready for your return. If that means there's people here, Jesus, that need to repent and believe in you for salvation, God, I pray you'd work in their hearts. Draw them to faith, God. For those who are Christians, Lord, I pray that you would help us to live our lives now in light of eternity. God, help us to do that by your grace, by your grace and for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.